Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Anish Chakpar, who is a professor in the Department of Surgery at Yale School of Medicine. She is a well-known breast surgical oncologist who participates in investigative, initiated, and cooperative group clinical trials, as well as translational and clinical research. The results of one of her recent clinical trials to improve outcomes in breast cancer surgery were published in the New England Journal of Medicine. She teaches an online course on Coursera entitled An Introduction to Breast Cancer and co-hosts a radio show and a podcast called Yale Cancer Answers. Welcome, Anis. Thank you, Gil. It's so nice to be here. Uh, So I would like to start with um, your insights, exploring a bit on the causes of cancer. Um, we know there are a variety of causes. It's probably a complex multifactorial problem. Uh, but there are things like uh, certain types of virus, uh, perturbation of the microbiota in the gut, perhaps in the breast, in the case of breast cancer, exposure to chemicals, hormone imbalances, genetic abnormalities or mutations, and of course, lifestyle. Uh, there may be others. <laughs> uh, let's, yeah, let's... no. Yeah, so if if you can talk about some of these risk factors, uh, for example, what's our latest thinking on viruses causing cancer? Yeah, so, you know, as you mentioned, it is a very complicated, multifactorial uh, kind of thing. And, and it really isn't simple, because if it was simple, we would have uh, figured out the unifactorial cause of cancer and, and uh, prevented it or cured it by now. Yeah. But... I think that there are a few things to keep in mind. And I always like to break down these complicated concepts uh, into simple ones. Mm -hmm. So the first is that all cancers are different. And they're different not only in terms of the organ system uh, at play. So lung cancer is different from pancreatic cancer is different from breast cancer. 
but they're also different uh, in terms of individual biology, right? So one person's breast cancer is different from another person's breast cancer. Yep. Now, when we think about, so, so that's one layer of complexity. Uh, when we think about the causes of cancer, in the most simplistic model of thinking about it, I like to break it down into two main buckets. Yeah. Uh, there are the genetic factors uh, and there are the environmental factors. Mm -hmm. So when we think about what exactly is cancer, like how does it work? The simplest way to think about cancer is that it is cells that have gone wild. Right. Um, so normal cells get mutated such that they lose regulation that normally controls their growth. So cancer cell essentially is like a cell that has an accelerator pedal, but no brake pedal. Mm -hmm. Now, all of our cells need you know, regulation, we, all of our cells grow and differentiate. That's how we, you know, become normal human beings. It's how we evolve over our lifetime and, and how our cells regenerate. Those are really important processes. And all of those processes are dictated by our genes. Yeah. But part of that is also the regulation of that. Um, so how often our cells grow, develop, die, regrow, etc. And so what happens in cancer, uh, in part, is that there are abnormalities that occur in these genes that essentially put on the accelerator pedal and take away the brake. So remove the regulation. Yeah. Um, and so from a genetic standpoint, uh, the simplest way of thinking about it is that there are genes that are called uh, oncogenes, which when turned on really spur on a cancer. Mm -hmm. And there are genes which are called tumor suppressor genes that when turned off, uh, lose that regulation. So they essentially make cancer. So if you take away the suppression of a tumor suppressor gene, you essentially turn on a cancer. Right, right, right. So. Um, so, so like you say, you can think about this as so the genetic factors uh, as well as environmental factors, uh, but foundationally, uh, mechanistically, two things that happens: oncogenes turn on, or tumor suppressor genes turn off, and that that essentially leads to, as you say, sort of a runaway mechanism in the body, uh, but. Uh, you know what is what what's our thinking now you know i sometimes uh, i haven't read about this uh, a lot lately but people used to think about this sort of a hit and run mechanism for virus and bacteria and, and all of that so what's our thinking yeah. now in terms of external organisms causing yep. this issue yeah so absolutely right so so once we have kind of that framework right yeah of how these genetic mutations can actually spur on a cancer, then the next question is, well, how, how do the oncogenes get turned on and how do the tumor suppressor genes get turned off? Right. What is it that causes that? 
And this is where we get into all of these other factors. So when we think about viruses and, you know, there are a number that we could talk about that are uh, uh, viruses that cause cancer. For example, the most common is probably thinking about HPV. Yeah. So so HPV uh, can go and essentially manipulate the DNA, right? Because how do viruses work? Viruses attack a cell. They then incorporate their DNA into the cell and they hijack the cell, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so this is how viruses work. And when they hijack the cell, um, they can then turn on proto-oncogenes, make them into oncogenes, or turn off tumor suppressor genes. And so whether you're thinking about HPV, which is a cause of cervical cancer, anal cancer, head and neck cancer, or whether you're talking about other viruses like hepatitis B, which is a a risk factor for liver cancer, um, this is one mechanism of inducing DNA damage. Now, there are other mechanisms too. So, you know, the other bucket, remember, is environmental causes, yeah, right? Yeah. So, so when you think about that, it still boils down to what is happening, what exposure do you get from the environment that ultimately causes your cells to have this runaway mechanism? Hmm. So think about, you know, it's summertime now. Um, think about melanoma. How does that occur? Well, UV radiation, UVA and UVB rays that penetrate through uh, the uh, stratosphere actually can penetrate the skin. And when they do that, they can penetrate cells and they can cause DNA damage. That DNA damage then can, again, start this whole cascade of mutations. And so there have been a number of molecular pathways that have been elucidated um, that help us to understand some of the mechanisms of of these uh, of these cancers turning on, whether from genetic causes or environmental causes. And once we realize uh, these mechanisms, uh, a number of things can happen. So first off, um, you know, when we think about viruses. I I think one of the important things is that if we find a virus that is etiologically uh, linked to particular cancers, um, we're able often to find a vaccine. And so one of the the greatest things in cancer prevention that's occurred is the HPV vaccine, which is very, very good in terms of uh, preventing um, cervical cancer and other kinds of cancer. The other thing is that we can think about prevention. So when we think about the example with UV rays and melanoma, we know that there's a benefit of, you know, the the five S's, right? Slip, slap, slop, seek, uh, and slide in terms of protecting yourself from the sun and and the benefit of of sunscreen. Um, But the other thing that has happened is as we've started to figure out um, mechanisms that occur both outside of individual cells and within individual cells of how these um, these mutations occur, right? Mm-hmm. Your cell is exposed to uh, an exposure, whether it's a virus or whether it's a, an environmental toxin or whether it's a hormone, 
right? So take, for example, um, estrogen in the case of breast cancer. Yeah. So breast cancers, um, uh, about 80% of them have an estrogen receptor. Um, and so when stimulated by estrogen, they actually uh, can proliferate. Mm. And, and similarly, we found with HER2, which is HER2 is a tyrosine kinase receptor, that in these cells that overexpress yeah. HER2, you essentially turn on this mechanism where the cell gets stimulated to reproduce. Um, and so by, by kind of figuring out um, what are these various factors that are going on within cells, um, you can then uh, figure out how to block them, whether with endocrine therapy in the case of estrogen, um, anti-HER2 therapy in the case of HER2. Similarly, we've looked at, uh, you know, discovered growth factors uh, and growth factor receptors like EGFR, uh, which is epidermal um, uh, growth factor, which is something that we often see in lung cancer. And now there are drugs targeting that. Yeah. Um, so, so there's a number of ways of, of figuring all of that out. Yeah. And I think, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I think that the other thing that, that is a hot topic right now is this whole concept of, well, okay, um, once we have figured out all of these kinds of things, this low-hanging fruit, mm -hmm. um, you know, we still find that there are some cancers that, um, you know, we, we can't target uh, with our, our drugs um, or that evade the immune system because ultimately the job of your immune system is to kind of figure out what is foreign, what is abnormal and clear it. Right. right? Um, but, you know, cancer cells are, are pretty uh, smart uh, in <laughs> the sense that, you know, they, and I, I think it, a bit of it boils down to evolution and survival of the fittest. So, cancer cells kind of figure out how to survive. Right. Uh, and one of the ways to survive is to evade the immune system. Yeah. yeah. And so um, and so now this is another uh, very active uh, area of research, which is to um, to try to combat the uh, the invisibility cloak that many of these cancer cells put on. So how do we how do we make them appear to the immune system so that the immune system can attack them? So I think, you know, looking at all of these different causes of cancer and how uh, DNA damage occurs and how cancer cells actually uh, turn on um, have really led to a variety of therapies and preventative strategies that we use all the time. Yeah, yeah. And the other side of virus, of course, is bacteria and more generally the microbiome. Mm. And and I know that, um, you know, there are a lot of influences of, you know, related to uh, obesity, type 2 diabetes, um, you know, uh, things like that, which are also related to perhaps uh, the dynamic balance of the microbiome. So what's our current view uh, as to, you know, the importance of microbiome uh, as far as cancer causes? Yeah. So this is another uh, hot topic of investigation currently. You know, we know that you've got in your gut some good bacteria and that this is really important for uh, your GI tracts microflora. 
and you know historically people have thought well that's all well and good that's fine for thinking about uh, maintaining that gut microbiome for colon cancer and certainly that's an area where there has been some study particularly for example in thinking about dietary interventions like increasing dietary fiber which helps to maintain your gut's microbiome and um and has has also been shown to reduce your risk of colon cancer mm. but now people have started to really look at the gut microbiome and think about this as not simply being a local factor, right? Because your gut microbiome actually may have um, more systemic effects in terms of inflammation. And so then you start putting together the cascade of inflammation, infection, um, and and cancer, um, because, you know, your immune system is wrapped into that whole uh, uh, kind of network as well. And so this is an active area of study. So for example, there is a trial that I'm involved in currently um, looking at diet and exercise in cancer survivors, um, which is a follow-on from the LEAN trial, which uh, also looked at diet and exercise. But this is really one of our endpoints is to look at the gut microbiome and look at it in terms of inflammation and how um, we might be able to um, figure out the impact of the gut microbiome on cancer. Yeah, and as far as uh, breast cancer goes, uh, there is also sort of a microbiome environment in the breast as well, I would imagine, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. So anytime we think about, you know, the microenvironment of of cancers, um, you always need to think about that, right? So, I mean, this goes back historically to people who were talking about uh, concepts like the seed and soil hypothesis, right? Mm. So how can a cancer grow? Um, it needs to be in a particular environment. And so people have looked at, you know, what are the factors in that environment that help cancers to grow? So when we think about the hallmarks of cancer, and this is goes back to studies that were published in The Lancet that I, I think many uh, uh, listeners may be aware of, you know, thinking about things like angiogenesis and, and having factors that help cancer cells kind of diapodes into blood vessels and gain access into lymphatics and so on. And so there needs to be a micro environment yeah. around the cancer that allows it to grow and, and develop. Yeah. And, and thinking about the environmental factors, um, you know, there, there are a couple of topical things. Um, uh, Bayer uh, settled a lawsuit uh, about $10 billion for Roundup weed killer. Mm-hmm. Uh, just last week, I think, and Johnson Johnson settled uh, around the talcum powder uh, issue. Uh, so it seems like you know the chemicals that you're you're exposed to, uh, especially uh, again from a breast cancer perspective, uh, gasoline and chemicals formed by combustion always had a had a negative um, negative thing around that, right? Well, I think we need to be careful because, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's always uh, difficult to kind of separate out association from causation. And there have yeah. been um, some studies, uh, you know, that, that really haven't found that all chemicals cause 
all cancers. So this goes back to um, what we talked about uh, at the very beginning, which is that all of these different cancers are different. So for example, um, we know that certain chemicals will cause bladder cancer, and that's been a well-established link. Yeah. We certainly know, I mean, one of the, the easiest examples uh, is cigarette smoke. Cigarette smoke um, will certainly cause uh, lung cancer. I mean, that, that causal link has been well-established. However, if we look at cigarette smoke, for example, and breast cancer, that really has not been shown uh, to have a causal link. So when patients come to me and they say, does cigarette smoke uh, cause breast cancer? I begrudgingly <laughs> have to say, um, well, no, we don't have data of that causal link, but yeah. it will cause heart disease, lung cancer, poor dentition, um, and a number of other things that will result in your early demise. So please don't smoke, but I can't tell you not to smoke because it causes breast cancer. Yeah, I mean, the complexity of cancer, as you said uh, before, it's truly a personalized disease, right? Mm -hmm. um, every organ is different, every individual is different. Um, and, and essentially uh, cancer is also an evolving uh, mechanism. So when you catch it, uh, it has significant impact on what you see at that point in time as well. Yeah, undoubtedly. I mean, not only is it evolving over time. So for example, early detection is really critical, right? You have, you know, a mammogram and you catch a cancer when it is you know, a few millimeters, your prognosis is much better than if you, you know, catch cancers uh, when they are metastatic or, or certainly locally advanced or very large. The other thing, however, is that even within an individual um, patient, uh, cancers can evolve. So when we look at cancers in a primary site, so for example, cancer that is in the breast versus that same cancer that has spread to a distant organ, we may find different biomarkers in different sites because as I say, cancer, cancer is smart, right? It's going to evolve. And as it mutates, right, it will lose some of that normal differentiation. So remember that cancer is essentially normal cells that acquire these mutations that cause them to become abnormal. So when we think about cancer, you know, we talk about grades of cancer, well, low-grade cancers essentially look as close to normal as you can get while still being a cancer. But, you know, cancers can become higher grade. They can lose some of that differentiation that makes them look like normal cells to look really abnormal. And so even in an individual, as that cancer kind of spreads and, and evolves, uh, it can change. Yeah, yeah. And, and from a diagnostic perspective, I, I saw a study that uh, that said something like 3D mammograms outperform traditional 2D mammograms. What yeah. exactly is a 3D mammogram? Yeah. So, um, so you know, when we think back to mammography, the simplest way of, of thinking about it, and, and any woman who uh, has had a mammogram who's listening to this podcast knows what it's like, right? You, you go, your breast is squished between two plates, mm -hmm. and orthogonal images are taken. And historically, what that did is it gave us 2D images of a 3D structure, right? right. So you take 
one picture up and down, you take one picture side to side, essentially you get two two-dimensional pictures and you put together in your mind uh, a picture of three-dimensional space. Yeah. So one of the issues uh, with that is that you can imagine that if you have dense breast tissue, and this is another concept that people may have heard about. Yeah. So when you think about the breast, right? The breast is made up of fatty tissue and fibrous tissue. Now on a mammogram, fatty tissue looks black, fibrous tissue looks white. Mm-hmm. The younger you are and the denser your breast tissue is, the more fibrous tissue you have. Yeah. So the mammogram is more likely to look white. Now, here's the problem. Cancer also looks white. Mm. So it's harder to see white on white, right? Right. right. Um, And you can imagine that if you now take a dense structure, right, that's got mostly fibrous tissue in it, and you squish it, right? Mm -hmm. So essentially, you've made this even look more dense (laughs) when you get these two two two-dimensional pictures. Yeah, yeah. And so, so then the question was, well, how can we do this better? And so what tomosynthesis is, is it is a technique where the machine will take fine slices Mm -hmm. through the breast. You can think of it kind of like a CAT scan of the breast, except it's taking these thin slices in each of these two two two-dimensional planes. So you can now page through that dense organ and look from left to right, for example, or from top to bottom through what would normally be one two-dimensional picture. And so what happens is you find that you are better able to find cancers, especially in dense breast tissue, because each of these slices, very much like looking at layers of onion skin, instead of looking through the entire onion, you're now looking through an individual onion skin, uh, multiple, multiple onion skin. So it's easier to see things. And so this technique is what they call 3D mammography. It's also called tomosynthesis. And by and large, it really has become far more commonplace. And so most places these days um, will automatically do uh, a 3D mammography uh, or tomosynthesis, at least in, you know, Canada, the United States, in the Western world. Now, the situation in in developing countries is is another issue altogether. Right, right. Is MRI a a better modality in such a situation when you have dense breast? Um, Not exactly. Okay. So, I mean, so here's the deal with MRI. Yeah. MRI is incredibly sensitive, but it has a number of disadvantages. Hmm. So number one is you need to be injected with a contrast material called gadolinium uh, in order for us to see the wash-in and wash-out kinetics, which helps us to interpret the MRI. Now, the problem with that is, just like you were saying about chemicals, what we know about this gadolinium is that it is deposited in your brain. Right. And we know that if we go back and we look at people who have had MRIs, we find these gadolinium deposits. We have no idea what it means. And so that's the first issue is that people might not want to get gadolinium in their brain. Mm. The second issue is that this is very uh, claustrophobic. Anybody who's had a breast MRI, you're in a very tiny hole, Mm. which is really uncomfortable for a lot of women. The third issue is the cost. 
MRI is insanely expensive, particularly when compared to uh, mammogram. Mm. And so as a screening test, it doesn't seem to be ideal. The fourth issue is it's very difficult to do an MRI-guided biopsy. Whereas with mammogram, it's very easy to do a biopsy if you find something. So anybody who has had an MRI that has found an abnormality, what you find often is the radiologist will do an ultrasound. And people come to me and they say, why, why are they doing an ultrasound and trying to do the biopsy under ultrasound? And that's because it's difficult to do the biopsy under MRI. And so putting all of that together... Oh, and one more thing. Yeah. If you look at the randomized control trial data, there have been over eight randomized control trials demonstrating a survival benefit for mammography. We don't have that evidence for MRI, simply because it's not a good screening test for all of the other reasons mentioned. Right. And so MRI is really reserved for people who have a genetic mutation, a BRCA1 or 2 gene mutation, or they have a family history such that uh, if you put them into a model like BRCA Pro, they would have a greater than 20 to 25% lifetime risk. Hmm. Um, but outside of that, most clinical practice guidelines put out by professional societies have recommended against doing screening mammography for the general population. Right, right. Yeah, so... You know, I want to also get your perspective on from a policy perspective, you know, I, I, I saw a few studies and one of them says expanding Medicaid linked to fewer women diagnosed with later stage breast cancer mm-hmm. uh, seems very intuitive. <laughs> um, what is your perspective on, um, you know, clearly uh, catching it early, uh, uh, making a preventative um you know, uh, di- diagnostics as well as treatment uh, has a significant impact on uh, on outcomes. Um, do you think our healthcare is really set up to do that effectively, or um, what's your perspective? Yeah, so we've done a number of studies looking at this, and you know, if you if you look at um, screening mammography, which we've already established, right, saves lives. We've got over eight randomized control trials that have demonstrated this. I think this is well known. Um, We find that one of the key factors, more than anything else, is your insurance status. And, And whether you have access to, you know, a family physician who can refer you for a mammogram. Um, And so this is really a problem when you live in a country where so many people um, don't have health insurance. Right. I mean, even without that, there, there are other excuses that women have for not getting their mammogram, right? I was too busy. I didn't think about it. Um, whatever. I, I didn't want to go through the pain. I found it uncomfortable. I didn't know that I was supposed to get a mammogram. There was a distance to the hospital. I couldn't go. Whatever. But, you know, when we think about what is actually going to change health outcomes, whether in screening or anything else for that matter, right, Mm -hmm. it really is access to care. And when you think about, you know, the leading cause of bankruptcy in this country is health care costs, which, by the way, are rising exponentially. 
Yes. And so, you, you know, we're one of the very few countries in the world who don't offer universal health care to our populations. Yeah. Um, and I think that that is to our demise. Um, we have the the highest rate of health care spending, um, but we don't have the outcomes that correspond with that. And, you know, you have to start thinking about, well, why is that? And, and I think one of the issues is, um, that uh, we have a big chunk of our population who don't have access to care because they don't have insurance. Yeah, I mean, access to care, and you know, if you look at total cost of care, right, and this is what we often miss, uh, both from a policy perspective as well as you know, from, from a general uh, economic perspective, uh, early diagnosis, uh, prevention, all of those have significant value to society if you implement yeah. it, you know, um, across the board. Uh, there was a study that suggested that insulin resistance is one of the major reasons why black women have worse breast cancer outcomes compared to white women. And so insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes, seem to have, you know, a huge impact, right, on all sorts of diseases, uh, maybe hypertension, type 2 diabetes, uh, and a few others uh, might be responsible for perhaps half our healthcare costs. Mm -hmm. And if we catch it uh, and maintain it preventively right from the beginning, it, it could substantially reduce total cost of care, but it does require sort of a systematic change uh, how healthcare is delivered, I would imagine. Well, not only that, yeah. Gil, but, you know, I... It, it, I um I also have a YouTube channel called Chagpar MD, and I, I recently interviewed Rachel Perry, who is a scientist here at Yale, who um, does a lot of work at the intersection of insulin resistance, obesity, and cancer. Yeah. And one of the things that she'll tell you is that with the rate of obesity increasing as it is currently, um, you know, the expectation is that within the next decade, um, everyone will have uh, type 2 diabetes. And part of the issue is that we have this obesity epidemic um, in, in our country. And I think part of that, when you think about prevention, right, yes. um, think about, you know, our lack of physical activity. So sitting is the new smoking. Um, and the fact that there are systemic issues in terms of our nutrition, right? Not only from a awareness standpoint, but there are large sections of the country where there are food deserts, right? Where people, particularly people um, who are of minorities or of poor socioeconomic status, simply do not have access to healthy nutrition. Um, and, and, you know, we've seen that even during this COVID pandemic, where one of the big issues was if kids aren't going to school, where are they going to get healthy nutrition? Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I think that when we think about, well, what what is the solution um, to so many of our, our health care woes? You know, I agree with you. I think that it is broad spectrum kind of thought as to how can we prevent disease um, by increasing physical activity, 
improving nutrition, improving preventative health care, access to care, uh, screening tests for cancer, basic things that can help us. Um, and I think that that really boils down to how can you really build in an infrastructure in your healthcare system that provides that equally to everybody? Right, right. Yeah, you know, the it's almost like sort of a binary design in the sense that unless you look at all the aspects that you mentioned, you're going to get suboptimal outcome, right? So if I, if I put Band-Aids here and there, Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be ultimately more costly and, you know, with suboptimal outcomes. So, you know, it seems to me that to, to really, um, really make an impact, you have to design it um, from bottoms up uh, and, and you have to touch on all aspects of that. Uh, all the things that you said, you know, in terms of diagnostic, uh, preventative uh, care, access to care uh, and really continuous care. Um you know, medication compliance is often an issue. Um, so, so we could potentially use technology in some of those areas to make that make that better. Uh, I want to jump into one of this. Um, you, you know, you did a fascinating clinical trial um, and had a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine. It's entitled "A Randomized Controlled Trial of Cavity Shave Margins in Breast Cancer." And I think there were two two such studies, right? Um, the the shave uh, shave study as well as the shave two study. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, so this was uh, again a intervention really designed to improve the quality of care uh, of patients undergoing breast cancer surgery and to do it in a cost effective way. Yeah. So we know that you know. Every year in the United States, about 300,000 women are diagnosed with breast cancer. And the vast majority of them are diagnosed early, thankfully, right? Because we, we do actually have screening mammography and about, you know, 75% uh, of eligible women will avail themselves of that. So we tend to pick cancers up early. The nice thing about that is that then uh, patients can have what we call a lumpectomy or a partial mastectomy to remove that cancer mm-hmm. uh, rather than losing the whole breast. But what's important is that um, when we take out that cancer, because remember, we can't see this or feel this. It, it, it's just these microscopic cells. Yeah. Um, we rely on the radiologist kind of pinpointing for us where the biopsy was done. So mm-hmm. this is why they'll often put in a little marker at the time of the biopsy to show us where this is. Mm-hmm. And then when we take it out, we x-ray it in the operating room. So we can look at, you know, where is that little clip? Is it close to an edge? Or does it look like it's right smack dab in the middle? Yeah. And the idea is that you want to take normal tissue all the way around. Well, you you can't see cancer cells, but you can look at the image and you can kind of say, you know, I think that the clip is a little bit close to one edge. I'll take a little bit more on that side. But what we found and what has historically been the case is that 20 to 40 percent of patients, when you do this operation and then you give the specimen to the pathologist, the pathologist takes about a week or so to look at the whole specimen and 20 to 40% of the time, they're going to tell you that you're close to an edge that you didn't take out enough of, right. that you need to go back. Yeah. And so you can imagine what that's like for patients, for physicians, for the healthcare system. Nobody really likes that. Right. 
So one idea was, well, maybe we should just take out more tissue all the way around. And certainly some surgeons were already doing that. Other surgeons like me, however, said, you know, I don't really understand how it can make much sense to take out more tissue all the way around when you can look at the specimen radiograph, you can see where you're close. Why not just take more on that particular side? Because you're taking more tissue. What could be the downside of, of doing that? Yeah. And so some surgeons said, well, you know, when we compared surgeons who took out a little bit more to surgeons who didn't, they actually weren't taking out more tissue. And I said, well, that doesn't make any sense. That's a that's a retrospective bias mm -hmm. <laughs> where, you know, you're comparing surgeons who know that they're going to take out more. So yeah. they hug the cancer and then they take out more versus surgeons who take out more to begin with. And because they know that they're not going to take out more, they take out a bigger specimen. So the two end up being equal. So what I said was, in order to really test this, mm -hmm. let's surgeons who selectively shave so you know take out a little bit where you think you're close and tell them at the time that you have done your best operation and you're ready to close then we will open an envelope in the operating room so you'll be blinded up until this point <laughs> and we will tell you either no shave because you were going to close so close that's what you would normally do right or just take out more all the way around shave Right. And so in doing this trial, this was therefore very objective, right? We knew that if the surgeons were going to take out more, there would be more tissue taken out. And there was. Right. Um, but then we also looked at the positive margin rate, the chances of having cancer at the edge. And what we found was that by taking out more tissue all the way around at the time of the first operation, you cut the positive margin rate in half, you cut the reoperation rate in half, it yeah. did add about 10 minutes to the operative procedure. And it did add to the pathology costs, right, because you were generating more specimens for the pathologist to look at. But that cost was offset by the reduction in reoperations. Yeah, 50% so reduction is a big deal, right? That's a big yeah. deal. Yeah. And that's why it ended up on the front page of the New England Journal uh, with a, a wonderful editorial complimenting us on, on doing this trial. But one of the, the questions that then arose was, okay, that works at Yale. Um, does it work anywhere else in the world? Right. And so we got together uh, nine other centers from around the country that varied right? They varied in terms of geography. They varied in terms of patient population. They varied in terms of were these general surgeons or breast surgeons? Were they community practices? Were they large academic practices? And we had them do the same trial. Yeah. And that was the SHAVE-2 trial, uh, which was published uh, a couple of years ago, um, which found the same thing. In fact, it found that the reduction in positive margins and re-excision was actually closer to 70%. And so, so this was really a big deal and I think um, it has become practice changing um, because it, it's a simple uh, technique. It doesn't require any fancy technology or, or anything to do um, and can make a real difference for patients. But now the question is, how can we do even better? And so that's, you know, that's the next uh, task. Yeah, yeah. So this is uh, now becoming uh, sort of a standard of care. 
I think so. Yeah. I think the vast majority of surgeons around the country and around the world have really adopted this because now you have level one evidence, not only from the SHAVE trial and the SHAVE 2 trial, but it's also been replicated by another smaller trial that was done in African-American patients. So many people have adopted this as standard of care. Now, there are still some surgeons who are a little bit reluctant because they say, you know, we are taking out more tissue and what will that do to the cosmetic result? Mm. We're looking at that in terms of our data um, and trying to figure out how we can improve the technique um, such that uh, we can still keep the benefit of um, reducing the uh, recurrence rate and and the, sorry, the re-excision rate while uh, while taking out less tissue. And, and the next thing that's going to happen as we look at our five-year data, which we'll be getting this year, is to look at the recurrence rate. Yeah. Because, you know, some will argue that, you know, these days we have really good radiation therapy, we have really good systemic therapy. Will it make a difference in terms of recurrence? We're not sure, but you would surmise that it would because we know that positive margins are associated with a two-fold increase in local regional recurrence. And nobody wants a recurrence. Right, right, right. Yeah. So so to conclude on this, Anis, look, if you, uh, if you look forward, say, five years on this particular topic, um, in my you know, sort of simplistic view, uh, this sounds like an optimization problem, right? Um, precisely how much to take out in the first, first attempt um, so that the, the probability of requiring more is substantially reduced. Uh, do you see how, how do you see the, you know, kind of technology uh, developments in the next four or five years affecting that? Uh, perhaps yeah. robotics, uh, perhaps, you know, some, some aspects of artificial intelligence, um, you know, if we can, we can have a better view as to how to optimize that in the first, uh, first instance, uh, do you think, uh, do you think we'll get better and better? Yeah, exactly. And in fact, that's what we're working on at the moment. And there are a number of, uh, people who are active in this space, whether using, you know, optical agents to try and see if they can uh, kind of help us to see cancer cells at the edge, Um, thinking about artificial intelligence, uh, thinking about um, other imaging techniques. So all of this is an area of of, uh, a lot of investigation and and something that um, I'm actually working on as we speak. Um, so hopefully there will be a lot more interesting developments to come in the years ahead. Yeah, that's that's great to know. Um, this has been great, Anis, and uh, thanks so much for uh, spending the time with me. And uh, good luck with your research at Yale. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Bye.